Welcome to Work Matters, where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. I am your host, Thomas Bertels. In today's episode, we'll talk about building effective teams. And my guest is Gordy Curphy. Gordy has 30 plus years of experience researching, teaching, practicing, and providing consulting advice on leadership and team development. He previously held leadership roles with the U.S. Air Force Academy, the Center for Creative Leadership, and Corn Ferry International. He is the author of 23 books, including the number one best-selling textbook on leadership, and he is the architect of the Rocket Model, a framework for building high-performing teams. In our discussion, we will explore what a team is and why building effective teams is so important, how leaders can use the Rocket Model to create the conditions for a team to perform at its best, what the typical failure modes and the organizational obstacles for effective teamwork are. And finally, what steps leaders can take to make teamwork more effective. I will hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do so, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Gordy. Thanks for having me on, Thomas. Appreciate it. So you're the author of, I think, the number one best-selling textbook on leadership. Yet here we are talking about teams. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to focus on, on teams. Well, let me even back up a step before that, Thomas. Well, you know why my book is the number one seller in, in leadership is because so many people are having trouble sleeping. Um, you know, people buy my book because they, they have apnea or something like that. But but no, the, the reality is, is, is uh, for a long time, I was looking at individual leaders. And I think a lot of leadership literature really, for lack of a better term, looks at heroic leadership. You know, we, we spend a lot of time looking at the qualities that make up an individual leader and, and, and uh, many times uh, believe those qualities trump what's going on with followers, what's going on with teams and what's going on in the situation. And, you know, you and I have both been around the block a long time, and we know that many times situational factors are going to overwhelm anything that a leader does. Same thing with teams. There'll be team factors that sort of overwhelm what leaders do. Now, leaders, many, many leaders will take full credit for what works and certainly deflect blame for what doesn't work. But I think if you're going to talk about the whole notion of leadership, I do think you have to you have to factor in the team as well as the situation, put that whole package together to, to see what makes the most sense and how do we help people be more effective in their respective roles. Okay. So let's maybe start with definitions, right? What makes a team? What's like the definition of a team in your world and how that maybe differs from other groups of people that work together on a, on a common goal? Yeah, when I think about a team, I think about a collection of people that is working together to accomplish some sort of common goal. And it's got to be more than a dyad. I don't think a dyad is a team. So you've got to have three or more people. And, and most of the time in the, in the corporate world, you know, you're going to have somewhere between three and 12 people on a quote unquote team. I do make a big distinction between teams and groups. And people use those terms interchangeably. But I actually think there are two very distinct ways of organizing collections of people. Uh, a group is a collection of people who uh, everybody in a group has individual goals. What one person does in a group does not impact anybody else. 
and they get rewarded or compensated based upon their individual performance. So from a sporting perspective, a classic example of this would be a gymnastics team, a golf team, uh, a track team by and large, and a swimming team where people are competing against in individual events. How somebody does in an individual event really has no bearing on anybody else. How somebody does in a floor exercise doesn't, doesn't affect anybody else in terms of their floor exercises. And at the end of the day, they medal based upon their individual performance. Now, there is a team medal awarded, but that's really just a roll-up of everybody's individual results. Same with a cross uh, track meet, same thing with a cross-country meet. It's just a roll-up of everybody's individual results. That ends up giving us a team score, and then we'll get a, give some sort of team medal. That is really different than a team. And a team would be like a soccer team, a football team, uh, a, a hockey team, a basketball team, where there is a goal, which is to win the game. What one person does on the pitch, on the court, on the ice, affects everybody else. You have one person screwed up, it's going to affect everybody else. They're going to have to take actions to compensate for how the person's screwing up. And at the end of the day, individual performance doesn't matter. They win or lose together. They win the game or lose the game. And there are collections of people in the corporate world that are very much like this. Typically, when I look at a software development team, uh, uh, that's a really good example of, of quote-unquote, a team. Uh, but most collections of people in the corporate sector, and I think this is true both, both in the corporate sector as well as nonprofits, are, are what I call hybrids. They have elements of group and elements of team in them. You know, when you look at their, in, their goals, they have some individual things they're on the hook for, and they have collective goals they're on the hook for. When you look at the nature of the work that they do, some things they do, they can do independently, and some things are very, very interdependent. And their compensation many times is based upon individual as well as collective results. And so one of the things I think is really important when you're, when you're consulting to, to teams uh, is figure out, am I working with a group? Am I working with a team? Or am I, work, am I working with a hybrid? Most team models, most team consulting approaches don't even make that distinction. And I think it's huge because how you hire people, how you motivate people, how you make decisions, how you develop people looks really, really different depending upon if you have a group team or a hybrid. You created the rocket model as a framework for team development. And, you know, there's no shortage of models out there. I remember in my consulting career, I grew up with the GRPI model, goals, roles, procedures, interpersonal relationships, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, but you create the rocket model. Why did you create it? What was missing in the model that, that prompted you to create your own? Yeah, well, I think what was missing, you know, when you look at the GRPI GRPI model is actually quite good. It's one of my one of my favorite models, and in the Hackman model is pretty good too. When you looked at the literature that was out there, you know, some of the most comp. So when I was doing this 20, 25 years ago, the two big models were the Tuckman model, the forming, norming, storming, and performing model, uh, and the Lencioni model, the five dysfunctions of a team. Those were really the two big models back when I really start getting interested in this. And the problem with the Tuckman model is it was built uh, using something called T-groups, which are basically leaderless discussion groups. Essentially, what researchers were doing, was, what Tuckman was doing was getting 10 people in a room, 10 people who had never seen each other before, sitting down in the room and not even giving them any instructions. Let's just watch what happens. And over the course of two or three hours of observation, you would go through this, these phases of forming, storming, norming, and performing. And the problem is when you start adding authority dynamics, all right, to, to a team, 
where you start adding goals to a team, which is what happens in most corporate settings, the Tuckman model doesn't work. The Tuckman model falls apart. There's pretty good research showing that. And one of the fatal flaws to me when I came to the Tuckman model is it was just built on, it was built on good research, but the research was not particularly relevant to the corporate sector. Where you will see the Tuckman model come into play uh, will be with volunteer groups. You know, many times you get a group of people who want to stop a Walmart from being built, who want to stop a, a wind farm from being built, or a PTA. This is where you've got a bunch of volunteers. There's no authority dynamics. Many times there may not even be a well-defined goal. You will see those four phases come into play. Um, so, so again, it's a good model, but, you know, use it with volunteers. The, the Lencioni model I thought was, was really flawed. Even the first time I read the book, I thought this was a bunch of BS. Um, first of all, nobody as good as the leader that he, he writes about in this book. It's like none of the leaders I've ever worked with is this good. You know, this person is really good. And then the model itself was, was pretty flawed. I mean, because the first piece was if you don't, you, you don't trust each other, uh, you do not pass gold, you do not collect $200. And I think that's looking at trust as an input variable, saying you've got to have trust before you move ahead. And to me, trust is one of those things that actually build over time. It's, you know, you just don't share your MBTI results and all of a sudden we trust each other and we can move forward. Well, you know, and the second second component in the model is, is I can't remember, there's, there's one is like a lack of commitment. And, and yeah, fair enough, but you've not defined what the team is trying to do and who's doing what roles and how are you supposed to work together? If you haven't done that, how, of course you're going to have a lack of commitment. I, same thing with uh, an absence of conflict. Well, if you haven't defined what it is you're going to do and, and how are you going to allocate resources and how are you going to get work done, of course you're going to not have any conflict. So to me, the, 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 the problem with the Lencioni model is, is there, there are actually a lot of the right components in it, but the sequencing was just really goofed up. It was great for people who want to you know, sing Kumbaya and get along together and, and uh uh, let's all be happy. But from a business results perspective, and that's why I get involved with teams, is how do we end up getting better business results? I thought it really provided a lot of wrong, wrong-headed feedback. So you create your own model. The other model starts like at the wrong starting line. Where does your model start? My model starts with a, a concept called uh, context. And what context is all about is the, the situation surrounding the team. All teams operate in a context. They have customers, they have competitors, they have suppliers. Many of them have to deal with market conditions, geopolitical issues, pandemics. There's just a variety of, of, of external factors, external factors to a team, but also maybe even internal factors to a corporation that's still affecting the team. That's going to affect what a team does, how it operates, uh, what it can accomplish, uh, what kind of support it can expect to get. And what we know about context is all teams operate in a context. And, and 10 people on a team, we're going to have 10 different ideas about what that context is. They're going to have different assumptions about what their customers are going to be doing. They're going to have different assumptions about what competitors are doing, what the supplies, suppliers might be doing, uh, what's going to happen to the economy, what's going to happen to inflation. And what you really end up doing in terms of our model, context is the first place we get started. And what we end up doing is, is an exercise to really just get everybody's assumptions about the situation on this, out on the table 
and let's have a bunch of discussion about it. And when we get done talking about it, we should have a pretty good sense of alignment that here's what we think is going to happen over the next 12 months. And we're aligned on it because otherwise what ends up happening is uh, the leader and everybody else is assuming they're looking at the situation the same way. We're all making the same set of assumptions. And many times that's just not true, especially if you have people remote. They're looking at the world real differently. And you got people who join the team at different times. They're just looking at the world differently. And there's nothing wrong with the different ways people, people are looking at the world. But what you want to do is get all those viewpoints on the table and say, okay, which, is one, which one is ours as a collective? I think that's an excellent addition um, because it, it obviously like if you don't, if you all work off a different right, sheet of music, it's really hard to create a song together. You've worked with a lot of different teams over the years. What are like, the typical failure modes? Where do teams come apart? What patterns have you seen? Yeah, it, 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 well, you know, we have eight components in the rocket model and you, you, you'll see they're all opportunities for failure. <laughs> you know, where people don't get it right. You know, sometimes it has to do with, again, being misaligned around context. You know, a couple of bigger ones, I, I think, Thomas, are around the notion of mission. So mission is all about the team's purpose, the need, unique value add of the team, the team's metrics. You know, how is it defining success and what are its strategic priorities in terms of driving that? And particularly if you're working in the nonprofit world or with some, some functions like HR in particular, but legal can fall into this, many times they just don't have well-defined goals. You know, people are working hard, but it's like confusing activity with productivity. How, how are you actually measuring success? How are, you, how are you measuring, how are you moving the needle? A lot of times I'll see problems around the mission component. Yeah, we're all on the same page about why we exist. Okay, but then how are you defining success? And they'll fall apart in terms of not really defining a good set of uh, measurable goals for a team or setting a clear set of priorities to accomplish those goals. Another place where I see teams fail a lot is the whole norms component. That's another component, which are essentially the unwritten rules by which teams operate. And particularly with hybrids, you know, we talked about hybrids earlier where there's this elements of group and elements of team with a collection of people. Whenever you have a hybrid, what's really important to do is, is sit down with folks and say, well, let's clarify on what topics do we operate as a group where you can work pretty independently or there may be a subgroup of you working on this independently and the rest of us don't need to get involved with it. In which topics do we actually have to be aligned on, where we have to work as a team? That is a very typical issue with, with particularly senior teams. You know, many times with senior teams are running big, the folks on that team are running big organizations. And senior teams are populated with alpha males and alpha females. And so they suffer from what I call, uh, what we call alpha paralysis. And the idea being is, I don't care how irrelevant the topic is to my expertise, by God, the rest of you need to know where I'm coming from. And so what you end up seeing on top teams is they spend an inordinate amount of time on topics that may only be relevant to one or two people. And it ends up pissing off the people who are involved with it because they're getting all these opinions where they go, you know, you don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, but I'm going to be polite. I'm going to nod my head. I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And we're spending a lot of bandwidth talking about this. And the other half that aren't interjecting or on their laptops or their, or, their, or their iPads typing away because the topic doesn't involve them. 
So, so to me, the norms piece can be a big one around decision making about, okay, when we get together, what actually do we talk about? And how do we make sure those topics are the ones that really cut across everybody rather than unique to one or two? Teams that do this really well, when topics come up, the first thing they talk about, they call an audible. Is this a group topic or is this a team topic? Let's decide that first. And if it's a group topic, hey, hey Thomas, this is your, yours and Dennis. You guys do this. Come back and tell us what you decided. Okay, good. We don't have to spend 20 minutes talking about it. So teams don't exist in isolation, right? They exist typically in an organization. Yeah. Um, and the organizational context or conditions or settings or whatever you want to describe it also have an influence on the team, right? Um, what are some of the organizational obstacles that inhibit effective teamwork? Just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that, that's a flippant, flippant response. But I will tell you, Thomas, organizations are incredibly teams unfriendly. I was reading a study that was done in 2018 or something like that, where, where these researchers went to Fortune 500 companies in the United States and just said, hey, do you, have a, do you have a list of corporate values or corporate principles that you adhere to? And if you do, could you share them with us? And they got like 450 lists out of the 500. They got a really good response rate. So they get, and also all I did then, Thomas, is did a, did a frequency count. You know, the terms, they may have called terms something different, but, you know, they're basically saying the same thing. And so they said, let's just do a frequency count to see, okay, what corporate values sort of bubble to the top? The number one corporate value was integrity. You know, credibility, trustworthiness, integrity, you know, that was the number one corporate value which makes sense. The number two corporate value was teamwork or collaboration. Second most popular. So, so, so the point is every organization wants teamwork. Every organization wants collaboration. And my point is every organization then in turn does everything possible to make sure it doesn't happen. If you look at just the talent management system, if you look at, look at how people are selected, Typically, team building ability does not come into the selection conversation. We're going to talk about, does this person have the right technical expertise? Do they have the right business expertise? Do they have high EQ? Do they present well? Are they well polished? Are they articulate? Do they seem to get along with people? Great. But we never talk about, can they build teams? And, if, and so, so the talent, you know, the coin of the realm for any talent management system is is your leadership competency model. That's typically what organizations use when they start thinking about, okay, here's what we have to use to hire people, to develop people, to promote people, to, to compensate people. It's all built around this leadership competency model. 95% of the leadership competency models say nothing about team building ability. Zero. And so if you, you know, it goes back to what Peter Drucker said. If you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And so we, 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 we hire leaders. We have no idea what their team building ability is. Once they're on board, uh, uh, we don't do anything around um, helping them really integrate with their team in the onboarding process. We don't train them how to build teams. We don't provide them feedback about how their team is operating. Uh, we don't give them the tools to work with teams. Uh, we don't uh, typically compensate them for building teams. And we don't promote them for building teams. 
And, and the research from uh, Richard Hackman and some other folks says that only one in five teams is high performing. And, and when I talk to folks around the globe and just say, well, you know, let's think about all the teams you've been on. Give me an estimate. What percentage of those teams are high performing? Most people say 10 to 20%. And again, given the talent management system, no doubt, right? You know, we don't do anything to help leaders. What Stephen Kerr talked about in his um, article in HBR, I don't know how long ago, it was back in the late 80s, he talked about the folly of hoping for A while rewarding B. We want you to do teamwork, but we're going to compensate you on individual effort. The organizations want teamwork, and yet they do everything to make sure it doesn't happen. I mean, the Matrix organization is a classic example of this. You couldn't find a better structure to destroy teamwork. Let's make sure you report to two or three different people. I, I started my career at a company that was uh, very much into matrix management. I can relate to what you're saying. So a lot of times when we talk about teams, really talking about ad hoc teams or, or task teams, right? Teams that are yeah. formed to, let's say, develop a product or, or solve a problem. Um, I was at the Drucker Forum uh, in, in Vienna in, in December, and there was an interesting talk by somebody from PMI, um, the, the Project Management Institute, who uh, was, was begging the audience to actually have dedicated teams versus, you know, people spend 5% of their time on teams. Do you have an opinion as to, like, you know, the, the effectiveness of, of really fully staffed designated teams versus it's like part-time teams where people also have, like, a day job to do? I don't know if I have any data to back it up, Thomas, but what I've seen other companies do like Red Bull. So they run into this problem all the time. And the reality is a lot of the, lot of the collections of people at Red Bull are actually more groups than teams. Like if I was running uh, uh, the Amer Asia Pacific region for, uh, for Red Bull, I would have 10 GMs reporting to me. Those GMs are running countries like China or maybe three or four different countries in Southeast Asia, depending upon the size. But those 10 GMs report to me, and they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. You know, they, they have individual goals. What they do in their countries doesn't affect the other GMs. They get rewarded based upon their individual performance. And so what happens at Red Bull is they will have projects that come up where it's like, okay, this, cuts a, this is a cross-functional issue or cross-regional issue where we got to work together. And so what Red Bull's done is just use the rocket model. They find it actually is more helpful to have a framework like that as we build these tiger teams so we have a common process to help them be productive sooner. They really use, like using the framework as they run into these uh, temporary, temporary issues that crop up. Yeah, so what I understand about the rocket model, maybe just to talk about that for a second, I think it's both a, a vehicle to start teams off correctly following the right sequence um, but i guess it's also a model to diagnose what's wrong with the team when when performance falls short or or when the team goes off the rail can you give us some examples for what kind of tools or frameworks is like in the rocket model toolbox well the rocket model is made up of eight components and and, and when i think about the rocket model you know really all it's designed to do uh, Thomas, is to help teams have a common language about, about teams. Because if I have 20 managers in a room, tell me, I'll say, tell me how to build a team, I'm going to get 20 different answers. Some are going to be pretty good. Some are going to be pretty far off. The one I always hear the most often, okay, so how do you build high-performing teams? 
Leadership. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> what about leadership do you have to do? So, 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 so to me, all the rocket model is just provides a structure. It just says, look, guys, when we look at the research, here's what it kind of tells us about how to build a team. Eight components, eight things you got to pay attention to. You got to pay attention to the situation. We talked about context earlier. We talked about mission earlier. Why does this team exist? What is it trying to accomplish? Then we got to talk about talent. Who's on the team? What roles do they play? How do we develop their skills? Uh, is everybody playing nice? Is everybody a good team player? Then we're going to talk about norms. How do we make decisions? How do we run our meetings? What are the rules around communication and accountability? Then we got to worry about buy-in. What's the level of motivation on the team? Are people feeling optimistic about what we can accomplish? Are people committed to see the team succeed? Then we have to have, then we talk about resources and courage. Does the team have enough, the right data? Does it have the hardware, software? Does it have the budget to succeed? Courage is uh, trust and psychological safety. You know, do we have enough trust for the people to, to work together? And do we have a psychologically safe environment where people can safely challenge each other? And then the last one is results. You know, what, 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 what's the dependent variable? How are we moving the needle? Are we learning from experience? That's, that's the eight components of the rocket model. And, 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 and to me, the big part is, 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 is to help teams is just to go through the common model. Here, here's a model. Here's a framework. And then for tools, we use something called the team assessment survey. And the team assessment survey is a short 45-item 45 45 item survey, online survey, takes about 15 minutes to complete. And it just asks a series of questions about those eight components of the rocket model. You know, so you get a little bit more detail about context. You get a little bit more detail about mission and about talent. And um, the nice thing about the, the rocket, uh, the, the team assessment survey is that it provides benchmarking data. So you can see how does your team stack up compared to other C-suite teams? How does your team stack up compared to other uh, functional uh, uh, business unit leadership teams or other teams in the U.S.? We've got 19 different benchmarking groups you can compare yourself against. Global norms, you know, private sector norms, public sector norms, what do you want to do? But it, what, the, what, the, what the team assessment survey is designed to do is, is really help teams have the right conversations. The rocket model is a framework to make sure, okay, when we talk about teams, we're going to be talking about the same team, same thing. The team assessment survey really goes at, okay, here's our data. How do we start having the right conversations about what's working and what's not working on the team? And how do we start getting some motivation to do some things differently? So one topic that I'm interested in um, is the space of work design, right? How do we design work? to be both more productive, but also more intrinsically motivating for people. Mm -hmm. One of the key drivers of meaningful work is to do the entire task from start to finish. Now, in today's organizations, right, we chop work into pretty small, finite pieces, and we ended, I, I think, in, in very fragmented workforce. And now we need oodles and oodles of supervisors to make sure that right, the task is gets coordinated from start to finish. Um, so. Right, following like the Hackman Oldman logic, the question would be: Well, could one person do the entire job from start to finish? That would make it an intrinsically motivating task, but that's oftentimes not possible because you need very different skill sets and expertise. One other way to get the work done is really creates like a permanent team that owns this process from start to finish. Yeah, and I'd be curious as to what are your thoughts because that structure differs a little bit from like an ad hoc 
team model where you say, right, get this job done and afterwards you disband and everybody goes back to their normal job. Here people right, stay in this team formation and the team oftentimes also develops, right, and maybe moves towards a team that has more self-managing aspects to that. When does a structure like that make sense? Um, and, and what's different, right, from a more task-driven uh, uh, team that leaders should consider? I'm a big proponent of the Hackman and Olbin stuff in terms of, uh, you know, making work more intrinsically interesting. I had not thought about it before until you brought it up, Thomas. You know, think about it from a team perspective as opposed to an individual perspective. So, so if the team perspective is to save the life of the patient, like if you're talking about a surgical team, that might be a really good example of this, where you've got very deep subject matter expertise, and you really can't have the person running the anesthesiology performing the surgery. Yet they 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 have to work closely together in order to you know save the life of the patient. And so you can see these surgical teams, especially if they're pretty intact, being able to be highly, highly effective, all doing meaningful work, all doing intrinsically interesting work. When you look at it from a team level, doing the whole task. And, and so that might be a really, I had never thought about it before, but that might be a really interesting to think about it. It's like, okay, what kind of team do we need to assemble in order to have the whole task, uh, you know, packaged pack you know here here's what the entire task looks like so then starting from that what kind of team would we need to assemble what kind of skills would they need to have and what would those work handoffs need to look like in order to pull that off it's a fascinating i think it's a really something really interesting i i, I think you found your next five million dollar idea yeah we talk about right individual performance and we've studied that to the nth degree <laughs> Right, we had all these temporary teams, and right, thanks to the rocket model and, and right, other research, I think there's a really robust mechanism there. But I think this whole space around, like, you know, we create a team that owns this job from start to finish, and how does that team develop itself, right? Yeah. And, and, and maybe over time, right, it needs less of so like other leadership interventions, and maybe the team can take on more accountability and autonomy and get out of like this classical hierarchical model. I think that's a really... Um, that's a really interesting topic. Maybe it's a good segue also to my to my next question. Um, so you started uh, out your career, if I'm not mistaken, uh, among other things, teaching at the United States Air Force Academy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of so the, the, the theories and, and concepts that we know about organizations, they really came from the military, right? Initially, I think from like how Napoleon or the Prussian military organized themselves. And, and so I think we copy-pasted that into the organizational context. But um, my understanding is that that's like when it comes to military doctrine, that has evolved quite a bit from those 19th century models. Yeah. Um, what do you think leaders in, in today's organizations kind of you know, can maybe learn from how the military today thinks about organizing and, and using teams? Well, and, you know, you and I had talked about this earlier, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a, I think you brought a really good point up in terms of how warfare has become asymmetric. You know, as, as you're watching, uh, you know, uh, even even Ukraine, you know, it's a far smaller country than Russia and how it's able to hold its own primarily because of, you know, some pretty smart tactics and in, in, in employing asymmetric warfare. If you watch the Houthis now, you know, take, trying to take out all the shipping going on in the Red Sea, it's like these, these guys don't have this humongous military 
it's like they're buying drones and, and trying to make as much use out of that, that, that you know, this, uh, you know, this technology as possible. And I think that's true. And, and so what the military has done is, is gone to a lot more of these, especially those in the front lines with asymmetric warfare is going to much smaller self-contained units uh, where, you know, almost like a Navy SEAL kind of arrangement where they've got eight or 10 people who are highly, highly trained, operate very, very autonomously uh, and don't need a ton of support. You know, they don't have a hundred tanks flying out, you know, in terms of uh, doing some sort of battle line stuff. Because a lot of times what we're seeing now is you can have these very expensive weapon systems taking out, taken out relatively cheaply and inexpensively by these, uh, by these weapons. And so um, um, I think, you know, there, there's probably still going to be a time and place for, for the major armies and stuff, but, but a lot more of it's going to be done with these smaller units that are much more autonomous and where people in the unit really do have to work effectively together to accomplish some sort of common goal. Yeah, it strikes me as a really interesting parallel to today's environment. Yeah. Because I think the old model of there's a threat in the outside environment, there's a new competitor popping up. And by the time that that message goes up the hierarchy, hopefully not distorted to the right person who is, you know, in charge of making a decision and says, go do that. And then right, the whole bureaucracy uh, comes into play again to cascade that message down to the people who got to take action. That seems to be like a very cumbersome, time-consuming process. And right, on the battlefield, It'll be too long, right? We need to we need to be more responsive, more adaptive, and I think it's true in the corporate context too. And, and I think what what you mentioned, right? I think this topic of autonomy and equipping the team, I, I think, is a really crucial point. It, it's like a different leadership model, right? Instead of we know best and we cascade down, give us all the information, we make the decision. It's a little bit more like a servant leadership model. Recreate the conditions for you to be able to respond adequately towards threats. And, Seems to me like it flips like the organization hierarchy a little bit upside down. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. There certainly needs to be some sort of overarching strategy. You know, here's what we're trying to accomplish. But then, you know, here's here's what the commander's intent is. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's the support you need. Go out and make it happen. You know, let, let, rather than dictating, here's how you how you're going to do it too. Yeah. Okay. Final question, without knowing any context, right? But what kind of recommendations or tips would you give? a leader um, to make teamwork more effective in their organization? Yeah, a couple of things. So one is, is learn about teams. So, so, you know, the problem is 80% of leaders think they lead a high performing team. Only 20% of their direct reports agree with them. <laughs> so there's, there's a little bit of a perceptual gap here. Just becoming a student of teams, you know, don't, don't, one, don't think you're really good at it just because you're not hearing anything about it. Uh, you're probably not. I think the other piece I would do is if you, if you think you're good, well, then do something like the team assessment survey. You know, because that what that will tell you is to what extent have you built a high-performing team? We provide benchmarking data so you can see how, do you how does your team stack up compared to everybody else. You can talk smack because you got a high score and your team did do well. But for a lot of people, if they're going to they're gonna be talking a big game and, and those results are going to be a bit humbling. Uh, and then I guess the third piece is, is learn about the tools then. So, so once you get that feedback, you know, there are tools you can use to help teams get better. And they're, they're very learnable. They're very uh, uh, teachable. And they will help teams uh, get to the next level of performance. 
but a lot of them are not the typical stuff you learn uh, if you take a, a leadership course. I find it fascinating that in today's world where right, we're relying on people so much to really create value that so little of that knowledge about what makes my right, people or teams effective has, has made its way into like management and leadership training. I think that's a huge gap. And I'm so glad that the rocket model fills a big part of that gap. So for folks that want to learn more about that, um, where can they go? Well, you can check out our website, www.therocketmodel.com. That's probably the good place Good place to go. We're, we're in a process of doing a major revamp of that website because it's a little bit old and dated at this point. But hopefully by the end of Q1, the, the new version will be up and running. And that should be a good resource. I mean, in terms of how can you learn about the rocket model? How can you learn about the team assessment survey? Where can you go to, to, to learn more about teams like our book, Ignition, or the rocket model? It'll be a good resource for folks who who are really interested in either becoming a better team consultant or a better team leader. Good. And we'll put those uh, links into the show notes. Also, if people want to learn more about your work, they can go to curfeyleadershipsolutions.com, I yeah. believe. Right? Yes. We'll put that, we'll put that uh, address in there too. Wonderful. Um, Gordy, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts on effective teamwork. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I do appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.